Good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing today? Good, good. We uh, we were out last Sunday, and uh, Apostle Callaway was here, and we know he did a wonderful job. I listened to the message as soon as they uploaded it, and uh, what a great message that he delivered last Sunday. Um, we uh, finished two weeks ago a series entitled "What's Your Worldview." And uh, we just wanted to let you know that we have those uh, packaged up and available for you out in the uh, vestibule after the service at Resource Center. You can go out there. Three uh, CDs in this one. And uh, it's Wash Your Worldview and then Clarifying Your Worldview. And then we ended it with uh, What is God's Worldview? And so I pray you get that. Maybe uh, give that to somebody. And uh, we'll let Ben give this to somebody, whoever he wants to give it to. Uh, right now, we have those available out there for you. <laughs> if you want it, raise your hand. He'll give it to whoever he wants to. Amen. Hallelujah. Come on, give the Lord praise. I tell you, the worship is just, it's always wonderful, but today is just really, really uh, good. Sweet presence of God. Uh, I mean, right from the first song, second song, third song, I mean, just all the way through. Don't you enjoy? I never take God's manifested presence for granted. And I don't have to feel God to know he's alive or that he's with me and in me, but I sure do enjoy feeling his presence, don't you? Amen. Amen. We're going to uh, minister today. I'm just entitling this The Great Divide the great divide. And if I were to ask you a question, I realize you're standing, but if I was to ask you uh, in here today, who was the greatest law preacher, in other words, preacher of the law of all time, who would you say? Um, who's the greatest law preacher? You know, when I've asked that before, most of the time what I get is people uh, normally respond, and they'll say Moses. Moses was the greatest preacher of the law. Uh, but that's not correct. It might surprise you to know that Jesus Christ was the greatest law preacher that ever lived because Jesus preached the law. Uh, his greatest discourse on the law was the Mount, uh, Sermon on the Mount, it's called. Uh, it covers in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 chapters, a long sermon, and uh, an amazing sermon, and really his first public sermon that we have uh, recorded. And so uh, two weeks ago when I was in the pulpit here and I preached, I talked about how that God not only has given us his unconditional love, and nobody ever argues with me or sends me questions or debates that, you know, if you believe anything, you believe that God loves us. He loves the world unconditionally. God so loved. He didn't just love. He so loved that he sent his son. But then I also mentioned that we are not only unconditionally loved, but we are unconditionally forgiven. And every time I mention that in a sermon, that I, when I say that we are unconditionally, that God has unconditionally forgiven every human being on planet Earth of sin, people always send me questions about it. They post questions or comments or send me questions. And that's fine. I'm not upset by that. That just means they're listening. Okay? And, uh, but they have a hard time accepting that God has forgiven the world of sin. And that doesn't mean everybody's saved, but it does mean everybody's forgiven. For God was in Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, around verse 16, 17, he says that, that, that God was in Christ and he reconciled the world unto himself, 
not imputing or not counting their trespasses against them any longer. That, that Jesus Christ really did when he came. He took away the sin of the world. I always like to say this, God doesn't need your permission to forgive you. And when you understand that the only reason that God forgives any human is not because they ask for forgiveness, it's not because they pray for forgiveness, it's not because they cry, it's not because they're sorrowful. God's currency, the thing that causes God to forgive and to remove sin and his penalty is bloodshed. Without the shedding of blood, there is what? There is no forgiveness, no remission. That's what it means, no forgiveness. So the thing that causes God to forgive is bloodshed. How many times has God shed his blood? When did he do that? 2,000 years ago. God don't need mine and your permission to forgive. Now what you do is you, by your faith in that sacrifice, you receive the benefit of that forgiveness when you trust in him as your Lord and Savior. Amen? So that's what we want to talk about today. Let's, let's just pray. Father, we do love you. We thank you for the word of God that brings life and cleansing and deliverance to those that receive it. We pray that they would be many today, those over the Internet, those, and however this message comes, they will receive and believe the message of faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you. You know, uh, when I preached, mentioned that, and, and uh I just got a, a few questions this last time about it, and they said, well, how can you explain Matthew chapter 6, verse 14 and 15, then, Pastor Dale, if you say that we have been unconditionally forgiven? So why don't we look at Matthew 6, verse 14 and 15, and these are words in red. How many knows what words in red means? Words in red make you dead. I'm going to explain that in a minute, but I'm, you need to remember that little catchy thing. Words in red, the purpose of words in red are to make you dead. Uh, a lot of people are confused about this. Now, here's what Jesus says in Matthew 6 and 14. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, I told you it begins in chapter 5. Some people call it the Beatitudes. I've heard preachers get up and preach, you know, that these are attitudes to be. And that sounds cute and all, but apparently they hadn't read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. If you read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the sermon that Jesus preached, and you got any idea that you can keep that, fulfill that, do that, then you're delusional. Just, it's ridiculous. This is what Jesus said in, in verse 14 and 15, and this is uh, someone actually uh, sent me these verses the other day, so I just thought I would, I would just build a message on it. Jesus says, for if, everybody say if. That makes it conditional, Right? So if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now that's what Jesus said. Jesus here is uh, putting a price tag on forgiveness. He is absolutely preaching here, Jesus, conditional um, forgiveness. Jesus says that God won't forgive you unless you forgive other people. So in other words, if you don't forgive other people of their trespasses against you, neither will your heavenly Father will forgive you. So you're unforgiven, and if you're unforgiven, then you're, you're doomed for hell. You hear that being? See how silence that is? That's, that's beautiful silence. That's what, that's what you heard when Jesus preached that. He didn't have a microphone. He was on a mountain where they could listen to his voice carry, but it was, it was just that quiet. 
So did Jesus put a price tag on forgiveness? And, 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 and I said, yes, but why? Why did he put a price tag on forgiveness? Uh, before I answer that, I want to ask you a question. Where does the New Testament begin in your Bible? Now, how many of you actually brought a physical, literal Bible? Hold it up so I can see it just to be encouraged. Look at you. Now, it's okay if you're sitting here like with me with an iPad or your, your iPhone and you've got your Bible on that. But if you have a physical Bible with you, uh, with somebody, if you go to Matthew chapter 1, and if you just go there in that physical, literal Bible, now if it's a study Bible, it'll probably have a few extra pages. But all I'm saying is, and you know, all of you know this is true regardless of whether we have to prove it, but if you go to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, and you flip back one page or so, what will you see? You will see a, a, a page that will only have these words on it. It will say, The New Testament. It's called a dividing page. It's a page that divides the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, from the New Testament. And it says the New Testament, and then you flip over, and it has Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. And most Christians think that the New Testament began in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. But is that true? No, it's not true, is it? See, now most of you know this very well, but I'm having to tell you this because a lot of people, obviously, you, you were so quick to answer, and, I, and that, that, that encourages me. But most people do not know that. They think that the New Testament begins when their Bible says, after that dividing page, the New Testament. But the New Testament will not begin, and the New Testament does not begin with the birth of Jesus Christ. So the New Testament does not begin with the baby Jesus at Bethlehem in a manger. It will be 33 years before we get the New Testament or the New Covenant to go into force on our, on our behalf or our, for our benefit. Is that right? And so you know this, a New Testament or the New Will and Testament, last Will and Testament, same, same thing, means all the same thing. So we know that if somebody has a will written and they are alive, if you're their kids and even if you are the designated inheritors of that will, you can't go down to the lawyer's office and get your inheritance before they pass away. That's kind of rude to try that. You cannot, is that right? You, everybody knows that. You cannot get your inheritance. The will does not go into force until the person has died. Once they died, then you can receive the benefits of that inheritance. Is that right? So it's the same way with the Word of God. In Hebrews chapter 9, I'm going to read the, the message translation, verses 16 and 17. And if you actually have a message translation, there is no verse 17. They just put it all in verse 16. But this is what it says. It's just very clear. It says, like a will that takes effect when someone dies. The new covenant was put into action at Jesus' death. His death marked the transition from the old plan to the new one, canceling the old obligations and accompanying sins and, and summoning the heirs to receive the eternal inheritance that was promised them. He brought together God and his people in this new way. Man, that's a good translation of that verse. Powerful translation. And so that, that this is a greater dividing line than that single page in your Bible. And let me tell you what the dividing line is if you haven't figured it out. It's the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ is the great divide. That is what divided the old from the new. And let me tell you something. The cross absolutely changed everything. It changed everything. It ushered in God's new. He calls it, God calls it in Hebrews, the new and living way. And so what this means is that the new covenant era, listen to me, the new covenant era 
again, did not begin with baby Jesus um, at his birth. It would be 33 years after the birth of Jesus. In other words, at Jesus' death on the cross before the new covenant would actually begin. So in other words, from the time of Jesus' birth and even at the time of his public ministry for the three and a half years that he ministered, Jesus was a law preacher. He preached the law. Now he dispensed grace to the sinners, had compassion upon those people in how he dealt with them in their uh, uh, sin or whatever. And Jesus forgave people that never even asked him for forgiveness. He forgave the woman caught in the act of adultery. He forgave the man that they tore the roof off and lowered him on the cot. And Jesus first words to this man, this man's not said anything to Christ. And Jesus looks at this man and says, man, your sins are, not will be, your sins are forgiven you. The man had even asked for forgiveness. God don't need you to ask for forgiveness to be forgiven. God's already forgiven you. God decided to forgive you and forgive the world of sin. Jesus is the Lamb of God that took away, didn't cover, but he took away the sin of the world. Not just the sin of Christians that confess their sins. No, he took away the sin of the world. So God's not an angry God. Can't be angry. How can you be angry if you're not holding people's sins against them? God tells you not to hold people's sins against them. You think God violates his own word and holds your sins against you? The Bible said love keeps no record of wrong. God is love. You think he keeps a record of wrong? He'd be violating his own word. But it's amazing how many Christians believe that stuff, and it, and it goes against the very character and the nature of God. See, listen, in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, it's very clear here. It's right here in print. It says, but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. It, man, it's just as clear. Now, listen to Most of the church, listen, most of the church is very familiar with the idea that Jesus was born of a woman. What was her name? church knows that. Born of a woman. Her name was Mary. Uh, Jesus was born of a woman. But let me tell you something. Most of the church don't understand that Jesus was born also under the law. Jesus was born under the law. So when Jesus ministered, he was ministering under the law. Jesus himself was under the law. And so when you go back to Matthew 6 and 14 and 15 where Jesus said, if you don't forgive, neither will your father forgive you. Listen, Jesus is preaching what? He's preaching the law. To who? To those who are under the law. Jesus himself is under the law. So he is the greatest law preacher of all time. So when you compare Jesus' preaching, his sermons, listen, with the Apostle Paul's sermons, they preach two different messages. So you have two different views being preached by two different people in your Bible. This is what the Apostle Paul preached. He preached a different message than Jesus. Uh, why? Because he had a good reason to preach a different message because Jesus and the Apostle Paul lived under two different covenants. Are you with me? The Apostle Paul lived under grace. Jesus was under law. Jesus preached law. Paul preached grace. Now what are we under now? For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are no longer under law, but you are under what? Grace. You are under the roof of Grace Point Church this morning. Next door is the Civic Center of Valdosta, Lowndes County. You're not under that roof. You can't be under that roof and under this roof at the same time. It'll kind of tear your body apart. 
right? So you're under grace. So what happens over there has no effect upon you because you're not over there. I'm trying to preach to somebody this morning. The reason sin can't have dominion because sin's over there. I'm just using that. Don't get mad, Lowndes County Civic Center people. Whatever, let's just say sin's over there. Its dominion is over there. Its power is over there. The Bible says the power of sin is the law. So it, let's say it, that's all over there. Well, it can't affect you over here because you're not over there. Right? Because you're under grace. You're, you're, you're under a different era. And so this is what Paul said about forgiveness. <clears throat> Paul said in Ephesians 4.32, he said, be, told them to be uh, tenderhearted and be kind to one another. And he said, and he also said that they should forgive one another. He says this, as God for Christ's sake hath, King James, has forgiven you. He didn't say that, that, that you will be forgiven. He said you've already been forgiven. God's already forgiven you. You have been forgiven. He said because, so, so in other words, this is what Paul, Paul is not saying that it's okay to have unforgiveness against people. Paul is saying you should forgive people of their sins against you. But the basis of that forgiveness is because Christ has already forgiven you. You're already forgiven. So why don't you do what your Savior has done and forgive them? But that's not your contingency for going to heaven. Right? See, there, there, there's many today in the church that teach that, that we are to obey the words of red. Uh, in fact, you don't Google it now, but you, uh, I mean, there's a whole movement, and and I'm I'm, I'm not going, trying to go to war with these people or anything, but it's called the red the red letter movement. It's a it's a it's a powerful Christian movement, and really, I'm not saying that, that because they're using that title that they're diabolical. I've researched them a little bit. They're they're really upset that the church has really just taken on a couple of things, and that's uh, abortion and and uh, prayer. Uh, in the schools, and they think the church is majored on those two things, that, and there's so many far more uh, things out there socially, morally, politically that the church needs to, to focus on. So therefore, they, but what they're doing is they're calling the church back to the red letters of Jesus, and they're trying to compel the church, as best I understand it, to obey the the, the red letters of Jesus. And that and listen, and they actually say on their website that the letters that are in red are of more importance and of more weight than the words that are not in red. Now, you understand that when Jesus was talking, he, didn't, he wasn't saying, all right, now I'm going to talk, y'all put this in red ink. The Bible says all of the Word of God, all of the Word of God is God-breathed, is profitable for correction, instruction, and admonition. So it doesn't matter what color the words are in your Bible, they're all of equal weight and importance and of value. All the Bible is written for you, but not all of the Bible is written to you. There are things in the Bible that are there for historical uh, context and setting, and they're not written for you. Uh, they're, they're there so you understand some things. And, and, I mean, you know, Judas went out and hung himself. That's not for you to go out and hang yourself. You're not, you're not to follow Judas and hang yourself when you have a bad day. You're... But it's there for a reason. It's written for you, for your instruction, for your admonition, but it's not all written to you. And so the words in red are what purpose? The words in red are to make you dead. See, when I say them little things, I hope that sticks with you. 
Paul, the apostle, he understood that Christ was the fulfillment of the law, and so he preached God's love, he preached God's acceptance, but he preached it, listen, apart from trying to uphold the law's requirements. Now, isn't it interesting, it is to me, that both the Apostle Paul and Jesus Christ were both persecuted for the message that they pre preached by the religious leaders of their day. That shows you the damnable state of religion, because they won't be happy either way you do it. They were mad at Jesus for preaching the law, and they condemned him. And then when Paul came and preached grace, they said, well, you're just, we should just sin all the more then, so grace may abound. And they condemned him. So you're never going to satisfy the spirit of religion. But, but Paul preached that we should forgive people because we are already forgiven, but he didn't preach like Jesus did that you forgive in order to be forgiven. Are you with me? So, so Jesus preached unconditional uh, I mean, Jesus preached conditional forgiveness in, on the Sermon on the Mount to those who were trying to live by the law. You realize a lot of those people thought that they were doing pretty good. They thought that they were obeying the law. And so let me tell you something. And people have gotten upset with me making this statement, but here we go again because I, I haven't learned my lesson yet. <clears throat> Jesus was preaching hopelessness. Jesus wasn't preaching a message of hope. Not on the Sermon on the Mount. The law is not a message of hope. Words in red make you dead. The words of Jesus were meant to make the people there who had their hope in their performance and in their obedience to the law for their salvation for that to be destroyed. So Jesus was preaching the law so that the law could do what it's supposed to do and what it was designed to do, and that is to kill us. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, it says, Who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. If you go to any church or listen to any preacher, and if he's not preaching the new covenant, then you're not listening to a, a, a proper preacher. Because that's all with their ministry is the new covenant. He says, listen, not of the letter. That word letter, it means the law. Not of the law or the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter does what? The law does what? It kills you. That's what it's meant to do. But the spirit gives life. But listen, verse 7, but if the ministry of death, now, what's he talking about? He calls the law a ministry of death. The next verse or the verse after that, I can't remember, he calls it, Paul also in this same passage, calls it the ministry of condemnation. And, and he says the ministry of death written and engraved on stones. What is the only uh, commandments that were ever engraved on stone? The Ten Commandments. So God says what the Ten Commandments are designed to do is to kill people. And you're trying to get them posted everywhere. Well, there's a lot of people need killing, Brother Dale. <laughs> well, I could agree with you, and I understand that, and I would, I would embrace that in the proper context. I'm not saying you should never have nothing to do with the Ten Commandments, but the Bible says in the New Testament that law <coughs> excuse me, is not written for the righteous. <coughs> I'm going to preach it anyway, devil. Just, just cough it up. But the law is for the ungodly, for the sinner. That's what the Bible says. Somebody know that's in there, say amen. amen. So what's the law's purpose? To kill you. Let's say you're in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico, and you're, you're coming by in the boat. And you come by, and you look to the side, and there's a guy out there swimming, treading water. He's in the middle of the Gulf, and all, all the horizon, 360 degrees around you, there is no vessel. And you, go, you realize the guy's in trouble. And you realize that if you pass this guy by, he's going to be dead. 
And so you switch the motor off and you pull upside the guy and say, hey, dude, I want to rescue you. And he's like, I'm just on a swim. I'm just out for a swim. Dude, you're, you're going to die. I'm just swimming. Y'all go on. See, you can't save a person that don't know they're lost. You can't rescue a person from drowning who thinks they're just out for a swim. There's a lot of people living in the world and they think that they're pretty good and they think that their funeral is going to be, well, I was a pretty good person. Or they think that God wants you to just do your best. And God grades on a curve. Just do your best and he'll make up the rest is their philosophy. But God don't grade on the curve. We're going to get to that in a second. This, the Matthew uh, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, I would call this the greatest killer sermon. You want to hear a killer sermon? I mean, who would like to hear a killer? Man, this was a killer sermon. That's what Jesus preached. It was a killer sermon. It was meant to kill. Let's, let's take out some little excerpts of the sermon. All of you red-letter followers of Jesus. Jesus would talk like this, Matthew 5, 21. He, he, he started off, he said, You have heard it said in the days of old, of old you shall not murder. Well, let me just pause there. So they would hear that and they would go, this is, this is what the law says, you shall not murder. And they would sit there in their pious pride of confidence, I've never killed anybody. So what does Jesus do? And whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. And what comes after judgment? Hellfire. And he says it here in the next verse. But Jesus said, that's what you've heard said. That's what you think the law says. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. He's talking about the Sanhedrin. And they don't want to administer the, the punishment of the lawbreakers. And then he says, but whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. I remember growing up as a little boy in our family, and my grandmother, grandma, you know, everybody, boy, boy you, just, you know, you might as well just, you could cuss, dog cuss somebody instead of calling them a fool. Because that verse had you know, scared the heaven out of them. But isn't it something that Galatians, Paul starts off in Galatians, says, you foolish Galatians. I guess he was in danger of judgment and hellfire too then. Because he called all the Galatians fools. That they were foolish. And so th that's what Jesus said. You know, they were confident that they had, that with their ability to obey the command, Thou shalt not murder, but when Jesus, he ups the ante, he raises the bar and says, but if you're angry with someone, you're guilty of the same crime of murder. Je Jesus made, listen, Jesus made it impossible for anybody to comply with the law. And notice the, con listen, notice the consequences of disobeying his teachings. Judgment and thrown into hellfire. Th th that's it. Notice the shouting that's going down. I wish I would hold it down a bit. I mean, this is just for the red letter obeyers, okay? Verse 29, Matthew 5. Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, you should pluck it from your body. Gouge out your eye. Get rid of it. It's better to go to heaven with one eye than go to hell with two, he says. Next verse, if that wasn't good enough, he said, if your hand causes you to sin, if you can't keep sinning and your hand causes you to sin, he said, you should chop it off. Well, it's better to go to heaven with one hand and have two hands to be cast in the hellfire. 
Boy, don't you think they were shouting that, that sermon on the mountain when he was preaching this stuff? And then verse 39, I tell you not to resist an evil person. He says not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn them also to the other cheek. Now, we like to play church and pretend and stuff, but, I mean, literally, and I'm not asking no hands. I'm just saying, but if you slap me, I'm not giving you the other cheek. I'm going to give you a right cross. I'm coming for your head. I'm just going to put you on warning. Because I already know I can't obey the law, and I sure can't obey that one. Now, you pretend and play church if you want to. But if you slap me out of anger, then you better get a good slap in. Because I ain't fitting to slap. I'm going to ball up five-fold ministry. I'm going to fold five fingers. I'm going to show you what a fist to do instead of a little girly slap. Jesus said in verse 40, if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic that means your shirt in other words you ever heard the expression they're going to sue the shirt right off your back so jesus says in his sermon that if somebody tries to sue you to take your shirt then let them have your cloak which is your coat also in other words when they try to take you to court to sue you to take the shirt off of your back then the law says you're to actually make a present of your coat as a gift to them when's the last time you done that at the courthouse Verse 48, Jesus, in this last verse of chapter 5, I mean, he really ups the ante here. He says, therefore, you, talking to the audience, you shall be perfect. And then he defines perfection by saying, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Jesus says, you're to be perfect. And in case you don't understand the, 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 the mark of perfection, you've got to be as perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. And if you're not just as perfect as my Father in heaven, you're not going to heaven. That's, that's what Jesus preached. That's what he said. And then even if that wasn't enough, the Pharisees and the scribes were the most legalistic, but they were the most uh, considered the most righteous people. And so Jesus in that same sermon, verse 20 of Matthew 5, listen to what he says. He says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. That blowed their minds. These are common folks sitting out on the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, unless you, your righteousness goes far. See, this, the scribes and the Pharisees, they, 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 they claim to obey the law. They, 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 they wouldn't walk with so many miles on the Sabbath. They, 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 they tithed of their mint and their coming and their deal, and, and they did all these specific uh, things, and, 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 and they were considered the most righteous people. And Jesus said, your righteousness has got to exceed theirs. And he said, if it doesn't exceed the scribes and the Pharisees put together, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that plain? See, the, 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 the scribes and the Pharisees, let me tell you what they had done. They had watered down the law and made it palatable to themselves. And, and so the truth, listen to me, the truth concerning this great divide, the cross, the truth about this I'm telling you, it carries a sweeping, sweeping revolution 
in our thinking. Uh, and the whole way that we understand the Bible, in particular, the teachings of Jesus. And so the, the way a lot of Christians survive this killer sermon that Jesus preached, you know how a lot of Christians survive it uh, when they read through their Bibles and they read over those, those sermons, and, and this is what they say. They, well, Brother Dale, now, come on. I mean, he didn't really mean it. He, he didn't really mean us to gouge out our eye now. Come on. <laughs> come on, Brother Dale. You know better now. You I mean, you know. He didn't really want us to cut off our arm. He was just, you know, exaggerating. He didn't really mean it. Uh, is, is that what the people that heard him thought? Did they, did, they, did they think like that? See, if you do that and if I do that, then what we just had, what we've just done is the same thing the Pharisees and scribes had done. We watered down the law. You know, people say, well, you know, you sin, so you're out of fellowship with God. You ever heard that one? So you're sin, so you're out of fellowship with God until you do something to get back in fellowship. Is that the penalty for sin? To being put in a penalty box of no fellowship? Is that what the Bible teaches? The, the, the Bible teaches that the penalty of sin is that God's mad with you now, and so he's not going to speak to you, and so he puts you like in, the, in, you know, in, like in hockey, the penalty box, you know, because you did a wrong move. So now you're in the penalty box. You can't play on the ice with everybody else. You've got to sit in the penalty box. Or you're in the corner, you know, with a dunce hat on or whatever it is, or teacher drew a circle and put your nose in it. On the chalk. They can't do all that stuff now. They did when we was kids, but that's just what you do. And so now you're in the penalty box, so God's mad with you, and God's not going to talk to you anymore until you come and, and beg and cry and plead and tell him you're sorry and ask him to forgive you. And then he'll go, okay, well, I'll forgive you. Come, come here. Come here. I'm telling you, this town's filled and this world's filled with churches that teach that same. The penalty of sin, the wages of sin is what? Death. Death. Oh, okay. So it's not the penalty box thing, is it? So it's not like no fellowship with God thing, is it? But you know what that, you know where that comes from? What I'm just saying, watering down the law to make it palatable so that you can deal with a killer sermon. But see, now the dividing line is the cross. And we don't have to water down Jesus' commandments. We, we can take them full strength, 100 proof, because instead we can put those commandments in, in their proper context. Jesus preached law to magnify the law and, just, and, and so that the law could could bring us to a place that we would realize that we will drown without him, we will die without him, that we cannot live good enough to make heaven our home. And so how are we to take the words of Jesus? I'll give you three views. Number one view of the words of Jesus in red is literal view. And what that means is, if it's literal, did Jesus, did, did Jesus literally mean what he said in the Sermon on the Mount? Uh, if he meant what he said, literally, and we are to literally, listen, follow his teachings today in the church, then we should have a church filled with amputees and one-eyed people. I'm not trying to be crass or anything. I'm, I'm just saying, if listen, now you can't have it both ways. If we are to literally follow what Jesus said in red today and obey him, then we should have a bunch of one-eyed amputees in our midst. Right? Huh? Yeah, eye-plucking service. Not an eye-healing, eye-plucking. That's good. I ain't never heard of that. I don't want to go, though, but... <laughs> Let me ask you this. The rich young ruler, remember that guy? He came to Jesus and said, Good master, what must I do to 
you know, to make heaven my home. And he said, uh, Jesus said, well, you know what the law commands. Do this, 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 and this. And he said, and then he lies, and he says, all of those things that you just said have I kept from my youth. Jesus, the Bible said Jesus looked at him and loved him. And he said, one thing thou lackest then, go sell all your goods that you have, possessions, give to the poor, come and follow me and you'll have eternal life. The rich young ruler did not go, oh, you don't really mean that, man. Come on, peace out, bro. You know that. I mean, I, got, I, mean, I can't sell everything. Come on now. That's just asking. You don't really mean that, you know. He didn't mean that. He was just, he was just funny, man. He, you know. Let me tell you something. If the rich young ruler had to sell all his possessions to get eternal life, so do you and me. Garage sale time. Let me ask you this. Did the rich young ruler think that Jesus literally meant what he said? Of course he did. He walked away sad, for he had great possessions. Yeah, he, he, he said he, this, he means what he said. The second way that people survive a killer sermon is they said, well, he didn't mean it. He was just using hyperbole. He's just exaggerating. He's doing it for emphasis. He's trying to make a point. And those same people are the ones who I mentioned earlier believe that we should just do our best, that God wants your best. Try your hardest. Just give God your best. Just, I, Brother Dale, I made a commitment to God. Really? Really? you got to be careful now how you use that expression because it's not your commitment to God that secures you. It is God's commitment to you through his son Jesus that makes us secure. It's not your commitment. You had nothing to commit. You were dead in sins. And so these people think God grades on a curve. Well, you know, I mean, 70's passing. I don't have to make 100. No, with God, you have to make 100. So 0, 10. 10 being perfect, if you go to heaven, listen to me. If you go to heaven, you will be a 10. A 9.9 won't do. And, 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 and if you're not a perfect 10, you, listen to me, preach this sermon, are doomed for hell. You will be perfect or you will not go to heaven. You will not be a 7. You will not be an 8. You will not be a 5. No, you'll be a 10 or you don't go. That's always been God's requirement. Just what he said in the sermon, be ye perfect. And by the way, the perfection I'm saying Jesus said is just as perfect as my Father in heaven is. That's my requirement. And if you're not that, you're not going. Nobody's perfect, Brother Dale. Well, you better get that way. You better, find, you better listen to the rest of this sermon and try to figure out how you get that way then because that's the only people going to heaven are perfect people. See, now how, you see how that goes against religion? Come to our church. We're, we're a church of imperfect people. I understand what you mean. Don't write me no letter. Send me no email. I don't want to hear it. I understand on the outside, but we're not talking on the outside. We're not talking about the outside. The third way you survive a killer sermon, the first one was they said literal. Number two, and I'm talking about literal today, two, hyperbole. 
The third one is, I'll just call this the proper lens view. How many of you in here have ever watched a 3D movie? Anybody ever tried to watch one without the glasses? How'd that work out for you? I mean, uh, I mean, you still see the movie and you still kind of get the plot, but it's not very clear, is it? Kind of blurry? Kind of give you a headache if you try to watch it. I've gone a few times, I don't particularly like 3D movies myself, but I've gone with the kids, grandbabies sometimes, they want to see one, they want to see it in 3D, and so they, they give you the glasses. And uh, they're goofy looking anyway, but they give you the glasses, and I've sat in the theater and, um, and, and not put them on. Well, you miss a lot. You miss like the air coming right for your head. You, you miss a lot of good stuff, but you don't, listen, but the main thing is just you, you don't have clarity. So listen, what I'm trying to say to you, that the way that you survived Jesus' killer sermon is you, you put on the proper lens. And you look through the law, uh, looked at the law through the lens of grace now. And, and understand that when Jesus preached that, Jesus preached, a, he had a historical and a spiritual context. And so when you look at the words of Jesus and today, when you sit home and read your Bible in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, it doesn't confuse you. It doesn't leave you confused. It doesn't leave you wondering. It doesn't leave you feeling like insecure or like you're not being forgiven or God's mad with you. It, it causes you to be able to see what Jesus was doing was preaching the law to people that thought that they could get righteous by keeping the law. And then now when I read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, I rejoice. And I'm so glad I'm not under that. And I'm so glad for grace. And I'm so glad for the cross. And I'm so glad for Jesus and what he did on the cross. And so then Jesus says, be perfect. Did he mean it? Is that God's requirement? Jesus said that we have to be perfect. And so who in this church, who in this room would dare say, well, I'm perfect? Well, none of us in the natural. I wouldn't say I'm perfect that I always, I'm perfectly behaved, I'm perfectly this, or I'm a perfect husband, or I'm a perfect pastor, or a perfect dad, or perfect granddad. No, I'm none of that. I'm far from that. But I am perfect in my spirit. And I have been made perfect. I'm not going to be perfect. I'm not waiting until I die to get to heaven to see if I made the grade. Hebrews 10 and 1. Hebrews 10 says, For the law having a shadow of good things to come. Everybody say shadow. I told you this before. If we leave today and, and we go to a place and restaurant to eat, <clears throat> and the lighting is good, and I have a real hamburger, and you have a shadow of my hamburger. So the light's coming through, hitting my hamburger, and there's a shadow. So you eat the shadow, and I eat the real hamburger. Which one of us is going to be satisfied? So if you want the shadow of what the kingdom is, Go to the law. But if you want the reality of it, go to Jesus. Because Jesus is the image of those things, he says. And it says the image, uh, the shadow can never, uh, uh, with these same sacrifices, which they continually, year by year, make those who approach what? Perfect. God's goal has always been to make you what? Perfect. Down in verse 14, he says in Hebrews 10, For by how many offerings? He has perfected, perfected, how long? Perfected forever those who are being what? I don't have time today. I'm going to deal with that last part maybe in a week or two. Listen, judicially and spiritually, you are perfect. Manifesting that, you're not. 
you are being sanctified as far as the physical manifestation of that inward perfection. I understand that. Some people say, well, I got it all when I got saved again. Not in your flesh, you didn't. Are you going to sit there and tell me that you're perfect in your flesh and you're perfect in your behavior and you're perfect in everything that you do? No, you're not, dude. You're not perfect. But you are perfect in your spirit. You are perfect in how God views you and how God sees you. And, and, and so he says, perfected how long? Verse 14 again, you have been perfected how long? So if God ever makes you perfect, how long are you perfect? So it doesn't matter then, for you're perfected forever. I wish somebody would get this. Now, we're supposed to be further down the road in this Grace Church. Come on now. Y'all scared me. Y'all acting like, well, what's he, what's he preaching today? Perfect, listen, perfected forever. That phrase, perfected forever, you know that those words translated there, perfected forever in English, so we can read them, are the exact same Greek words where Jesus says this phrase, it is finished. You know, in one place, Jesus said, it is finished on the cross. And it's the exact same Greek word where he says perfected forever. Same word. Now, doesn't that give it some power? Come on now, come on. So, so, so when, when he says here perfected forever, listen, that, that is the strongest linguistic form of expressing the completeness of what Jesus accomplished on the cross that there is. You can't get any stronger than that. Perfected forever. And then Hebrews 12 and 23, he says, To the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. Oh, I love that phrase. To God, the judge of all, and listen to this, to the spirits of what? Just men, just means justified or made righteous. So the spirits of righteous men made what? Perfect. What's been made perfect? I just read it to you. The spirits of righteous men have been made perfect. That's what happened when you got born again. When you got born again, that spirit man on the inside of you that was dead was born again. And he, when he was born, he was born perfect, without flaw, without, without spot, without imperfection. That's how God sees you. So, so listen, so honor God's word. Honor the finished work of Jesus by saying amen. When somebody says, you're perfect in your spirit, man, don't go, well, I'm not perfect. Just say amen, I'm perfect. Jesus made me perfect. I've been made perfect by a perfect sacrifice. I'm not perfectly behaved, but I'm perfectly born again by the Spirit of God and by the blood of Jesus. So what did God do? God clothed you with his perfection of his son. God sees you through the perfection of his son. Now listen to me. The law is fulfilled. The law has not been set aside. The law is fulfilled. Now I'm going to make a statement. I've never made it before in the pulpit, and it will get me probably some emails. Because they'll take it out of context. But I'm going to make this statement because I need to say things. I say the same. I just have one sermon. I just preach it different ways. Now listen to me. Christians, now, now don't get, listen to me first. Let me explain. Let me explain how I say something, okay? But you and I as Christians are saved by keeping the law. Now wait a minute, brother. Whoa, 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 man. I, what's this? Some kind of double talk? stuff, man. You, I mean, we're saved by grace through faith, not of works, Brother Dale. Come on now, lest any man should boast. Now, that means right, not of your works. But can you actually read the life of Jesus and say he didn't work? That he didn't work for what he accomplished? You think getting beat by the cat of nine tails, 39 stripes, that wouldn't work? 
You think dragging the cross down the Via della Rosa wouldn't work? You think being crucified and willingly laying your life down and nails drawn through your, your wrist and your feet would not work? You, you think that wouldn't work? So I'm trying to get you to consider this statement that Christians are saved because the law was kept. You know, God didn't come and go, well, don't worry about the law no more. You know what, I'm just going to kind of brush that aside. I mean, I, you know, I tried that, you know, as a plan A, but it didn't work, so we're going to go with option B now. And, you know, so just kind of ignore that. You know, let's just kind of, let's give a mulligan on that, if you will. Let's just kind of, you know, let's, don't worry about the law no more. Uh, don't worry about it. You know, can't nobody keep it anyway. You know, that was my bad. I, I shouldn't try to get y'all to keep it. No, he didn't do none of that. That's stupid. The Bible says the law, Paul said the law is good. The law is holy. The law is righteous. The law is profitable if a man uses it properly, lawfully. How do you use the law lawfully? You show it to the sinner that this is God's standard, perfection. Total obedience to all these commandments. Not just the ten, but the 603 commandments that the law actually has. Or 613, I always forget. Too many to keep up with. I can't even keep up with how many commands are. That's probably a breaking the law there. The, the key, see, now listen, uh, listen, unless the moral law of God is kept absolutely and to the letter, there is no personal righteousness. However, the key is in who keeps the law. And I'm going to tell you right now, it's not you and me. It's not you and me. Any person... And I'm closing. Any person who reads the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and thinks that they can keep the law, I'm saying a second time in this sermon, is delusional. You're, you're on a severe religious head game. We are saved, and we, listen, we are saved, and we are righteous keepers of the law, you and I, by our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the only person who is ever perfect, He's the only person who has ever kept the law. And Jesus, though he was accused many times of violating it, never violated the law one time. He kept it to the letter. And, and he didn't keep the Pharisees' interpretation of it, but he kept the law to the letter. Romans 8 and 4 proves what I just said. It says, the, for the, Romans 8 and 4 says, the righteous requirement of the law. So in other words, the law requires righteousness. So the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled Where? In us, who do not do what? Walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What does that mean? In other words, if I try to walk according to Dale's flesh, and I do my best to try to obey the law and keep the law for the purpose of making myself righteous and heaven ready, then I'm doomed. But if I forego that, and I depend on the power of the Spirit of God, that I trust in Jesus and his finished work, and I place my faith and confidence in that sacrifice, then by the Spirit I am gifted because faith is of the Spirit. It is not of works. And so when I do that, then the Spirit... See, a tomato plant doesn't strain to produce a tomato. It just sits there, and it produces tomato. The fruit, that's why Galatians talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Not fruits, not pick and choose. Well, I have a little peace. I'll take some joy this morning. Uh, maybe a little kindness, tenderness. Uh, uh, no, no, no. 
you have the fruit of the Spirit because that's where the Spirit produces is the fruit. So all, I, I'm, I'm closing with this. Listen, you, you don't doubt your perfection in Jesus Christ. To, to see yourself as being far from perfect is not humble. It's not being humble. Uh, but it's an absolute failure to understand the perfect sacrifice that Jesus made for you and me that produced perfection. You were gifted his perfection. You were given his righteousness. You were given his, you don't grow in righteousness. Righteousness is a gift. You don't grow in holiness. Holiness is a gift. You don't grow in perfection. Perfection was gifted to you. It freely gifted to you when you were born again, when you put your faith. I don't have time to read the other verses when we're talking about where, where it says that, that, um, that there's a veil that remains over the, the face. It says like Moses put a veil over his face. And if you ask the average Christian, why did Moses put the veil over his face? They will reply like this. They'll say, well, he, you know, he went up on the mountain and he's in God's presence and his face shone and, and that's all true. His face glowed from the brightness of the presence of God. So he put a veil over his face so that he wouldn't you know, scare the people or whatever. That's not what the Bible says in the New Testament. The Bible says the reason Moses put a veil over his face is so that the people wouldn't see the fading glory. The fading glory. That's what it says. Second Corinthians, check it out. And it says, he goes on to say, and even today, he said, but even that old system had glory. But it was a fading glory, vanishing. But he said, if that old system had some glory, how much more then should the new covenant have much more glory than that old? Because he said, this covenant is not a fading glory, but it is an increasing glory from glory unto glory. Do you know that you know people that preach grace like me, they're accused like, well, they're saying they can sin and they don't matter. Nothing could be further from the truth. What is sin? Romans 3 says that, for we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Do you understand in that verse, I think it's Romans 3.23, but in that verse is the, listen, is the definition for what sin actually is. Sin is not the color of your hair, the clothes you wear, the actions you do, the choices you make. Sin, by God's definition, is that you and I have come short of the glory of God. God built you created you for glory. And when you choose to do otherwise than to walk in the glory of God, that is sin. You're, to be, you're, you're glorious. He said, I'm coming after a glorious church without spot, wrinkle, or blemish. Only now, under grace, does that verse make any sense to me. When I used to read that, that he said, I'm, retur I'm returning after a glorious church without spot, wrinkle, or blemish, or any such thing, I would just look in desperation. I, I don't know if I, I can ever attain that. But now that I've read the Bible through the lens of grace, I know that he made me perfect. 
He took away all spots, blemishes, wrinkles, and those old things of me trying to perform to get God to like me, to love me, and to live worthy of heaven. Now all of my energy and confidence and faith is in Him and in His sacrifice. And yes, I want to forgive people, but I don't always do that. You hurt me hard enough, I have a hard time. You can't stab me and then come back right five minutes later and say, can you forgive me for stabbing you? Well, I'm bleeding right now. You need to back off. You need to give me a minute. Now, maybe you want to play all them games you want to and forgive, forget, all that mess. But if that's your criteria, I've sat in services right here where, where I've talked this one night in a leadership meeting about Matthew 6, what Jesus said, and a man came up, precious brother, he's probably here this during the week, but uh, he's not here today, I don't see him, but he, he said, he said, well, i got to go back and straighten something out, uh, Pastor. He said, I just told some guys today uh, that verse out of Matthew 6. I read it to them and told them that they had to forgive, and if they didn't forgive, they wouldn't forgive them. And he said, and, I, and this guy, he, he'd been in church all his life. He said, i got to go find those guys and straighten that out. I, I said, yeah, you, you do. Because you see how that set people up for just despair and give up? Because that's what the law is meant to make you do, give up. Give up your performance to give up you trying to get righteous by keeping rules. God says, I'll make you righteous by putting your faith in my son. If you'll just esteem that sacrifice to, to what it is, a holy sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice, then that perfection is gifted to you as a gift. That's what salvation does. And when I start living out of that revelation that in my spirit I'm perfect, then you know what it does? It changes my outside. My outside starts looking more like my inside. And I still got a, I still in, in my flesh, I'm not perfect and don't claim to be. But in my spirit, I am pound for pound, molecule for molecule, the same as Jesus is. Because the Bible says in 1 John, as he is Christ, so are we now in this world. How is Jesus? He's righteous, he's holy. In fact, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Ephesians says, I am seated with Christ in heavenly places. I am pound for pound, molecule for molecule, cell for cell. I am just as righteous before God as Jesus is because that's how God sees me. God's not playing games with himself. God's not wearing Polaroid glasses, you know, kidding himself and going, well, I look at them as righteous, but they're really not. No, you really are righteous. And you should start seeing yourself as God sees you. I'm amazed when Paul was asking, but I'm amazed when Paul was asked. They said, well, if it's all this stuff you preach about grace is true, then why don't we sin the more? They were, they were constantly bombing uh, Paul with that. Why don't we sin the more so grace can really abound? And, and, and you would think Paul, because Paul was a real disciplined dude, man. You would think Paul, when he would, you know, was asked that, he would really come down hard on them, like, you know, why don't we just sin the more? You think Paul would like, well, won't you just sin and find out what that gets you? The way you sin, I mean, you think he would just come on them, you know. But you notice how he answered that? He didn't threaten. You know, most churches use threat and fear and all that to try to keep their members in line. But, you know, God didn't do that. When Paul was asked that, you know how Paul replied to, why don't we just sin then? Paul didn't say, well, have at it and come back and tell me how it works out for you. He, he didn't do that. That guy was sweet, man. You know what he said to him? He said, if you've been delivered from sin, why, why would you want to sin any longer? You know what I heard when I read that? I read this on while I was on vacation. 
See, I used to eat out of the dumpster, spiritually speaking. But why would I go back and eat out of the dumpster when I have a banquet table spread before me in the presence of my enemies? That's not who I am anymore. I don't like dumpster food no more. I don't wanna, why would I go back and eat out of the dumpster when I've been given a banquet feast of food beyond compare? That's what grace will cause you to look like at sin. Well, you can just eat out of the dumpster all you want to. Are you insane? Have you ever eat out of a dumpster? Leftover slop? Eating out of the dumpster make you sick. Do you, do you understand that even though you're born again and your spirit is perfect, but your soul is not? Your soul is your mind, your will, your emotions, and it's being renewed as you put your faith in Jesus, according to Romans 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. You're being renewed by the spirit of your mind, and you are going through a transformation outwardly, and even in your soul that we can't see. But your soul's where you get hurt, and where people hurt you, and memories, and all that kind of stuff. And, 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 so, and then you have the flesh, which is, we kind of know what that is. But listen, listen, li listen to me, and I've I got to end this, but listen, this is so important. But if, if I, Dale Young, born again, whatever you want to think of me, but I, I, I know that I'm perfect in my spirit. I know that. I, I, I don't wrestle with none of that anymore. I really do believe it. And I, I mean, I, I know it. I believe the Word of God. I'm perfect in my spirit. I'm not, when I'm dying, I mean, death don't, I ain't worried about going to heaven. None of that. But if I choose, for whatever reason, to touch sin, to participate in sin, if I choose to, to be involved in sinful activities or sinful things because I think I'm a grace guy now and God forgives me anyway and it don't matter, then what happens is you defile your soul. And it, listen, and it does not make God love you less. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more or love you less. But what it will do, it will make me love God less. And I want to tell you the reality of this for me. If I participate in anything sinful, it defiles my soul, my flesh. And even though I think I know all this, I'm perfect and all that, but it don't give me confidence before God. When you call on me to pray for you and you're in a life and death situation, if I'm sitting there looking at porn and go, I ain't worried about it because I'm forgiven anyway, and then I get a phone call, come to the hospital and pray because I'm dying, you can't stand before that person with your mind full of pornography and lay hands and command healing and have any confidence, not because you think you can earn it, but it's because it's not how God views you, but it's how you view God. It's how you, and so we're not saying here that sin doesn't matter and just grace point goes sin and have at it and you're forgiven and it don't matter. I mean, I've been, a, that's not true. And, if, and all you have to do is even be a Christian and, and, and have some understanding of the message of grace, but yet understand the defilement of your, your, your soul and your mind and, and filling yourself with things that are not, not godly and things like that. And, and it does have an effect upon you, your victory and how you view. It doesn't change how God views you again. It doesn't change how God's love for you is, but it will change how you view God. And if you continue in sin, you know what's going to happen? You won't be sitting on these chairs. You're going to do what Adam and Eve did. You're going to be hiding from God instead of running to God. And it's going to affect your heart and it defiles your heart. Do you have some glasses, reading glasses?
When I was on vacation, Wes, our men's leader sitting back there, Wesley Anderson, he sent me a, an email. And Wes, I'll tell you, brother, an on-time word. Uh, and I, I, it came back to my mind even this morning in prayer. Now, these are my wife's glasses, so give me a break. Don't you? Yes, they do. Thank you, Crawford. <laughs> Wes, I want to read this to the congregation. and I have no even idea. I just know when I read that while I was out of town, the Spirit of the Lord was so strong. It ministered to me both personally, Wes, and uh, I felt like it would fit today. This is a prophetic word, and, and, uh, and I receive it as that. It says, the Father says today, my word is a cleansing agent in your life. I have made you clean. What I have called clean, never call unclean. You are clean through my words that I have spoken to you. This is not something man can pronounce over you. Neither is the cleansing I bring something you can see in a mirror or that which can be uh, brought about by religious works or traditions. I am the inside God. The mirror of my reality in your life is found by turning inward and to the word that I personify on the inside of your person at the very deepest level. The flesh can be defiled, but the hidden man of the heart where I dwell can never be defiled. Listen to my inner voice where Christ sits enthroned and you will not hear misdirection, fear, or self-loathing. The hidden man of the heart surrounded by the love of Christ returns that love with perfect rapture. The hidden man of the heart which expresses your truest self loves the Father with perfect love and loves the externalities of your soul, mind, and emotions with unconditional acceptance. You are accepted in the beloved. You are holy and without blame before me in love. There is nothing to earn, only a love to be life a love life to be walked out when you are walking out the love life of my person on the inside of you there is cleansing who am i uh who i am is cleansing all defilement and all the pollutions of the soul man and compromised emotions and motivations be thou made clean says the father receive your life Receive your suke, your emotional life unto death. This is uh, the death that I am working in you that the life of who I am may be manifested. Embrace the process, says the Father. Embrace the process and lose the attitude. Can you feel it? Can you sense the hidden man of the heart seated at the right hand of majesty on high on the inside of you? It is the kingdom coming in you just as surely as the kingdom is coming on the cosmic scale. It is entering in now into whatever uh, everyone else is waiting for for then. It is now for you. It is accepting now the glory of who I am on the inside of you to deliver you and to set you free and to answer every cry of your heart. Do you receive that as the word of the Lord? If you, uh, if you want a copy of that, I know it's linked that you email me or even Wes and we'll, we'll, we'll forward it on to you so you can have that word. I read that so many times this past week, over and over. 
And God was really ministering to me through that word of the Lord from that whoever that brother is. I don't know, Wes. Thank you for sharing that with me, brother. And uh, and I pray that it ministers you. Don't ever call yourself unclean, unholy, unloved. Don't ever do that to yourself. God loves you. God don't love everything that we do. No more than I would love to see my grandchildren do things to hurt themselves. But I, even when they do things to hurt themselves physically, I love them. I love them. And my heart rises up to want to protect them and to guard them and to keep them. And that's God's heart for you today. Do you receive the word of the Lord today? Would you give the Lord praise for it then? Come on, stand to your feet. Ministry team, elders, would you come quickly? And we want to offer ourselves for prayer with you if you want that today. And uh, we would love to pray with you if you want to come down for prayer for any reason. I mean, the greatest thing that you could do today is just come down and say, you know what? I received that message of Jesus today. I believe and put my faith in him as my Savior. And I'd love to hear that. If you want to just come down and meet me, shake my hand, not that I think I'm something, but I would love to meet you, to greet you, to just say hi to you, then we'll do that as well. And I've been enjoying uh, meeting some of you. Some of you have been coming for several years. We've never even shook hands or hugged next or met. And, and so I just find that very unusual, but I, I'm, I'm enjoying meeting some of you. So if you just want to come down and say, hi, Pastor, I, I'm coming here. Listen, I want to encourage you, if you're here and you're not a member, and, and you know that this is where God's called you to be. This is your home, church. This is your place of planting. The Bible says those that are planted in the house of the Lord shall what? Flourish. Get planted somewhere. Hey, if we're not it, and we know we ain't all that in a bag of chips, but find where it is for you. But if this is it for you, then we want you to, to come and, and be uh, a member, be a, a covenant member of uh, Grace Point Church, Valdosta, and be part of this congregation. And and get involved in the things of God that's going on here. There's so many things going on in this wonderful ministry. So many opportunities to serve and so many opportunities to do uh, whatever God's gifted you to do. So uh, I just pray over you today, and I'm going to release the church at the end of this prayer for them to go and enjoy uh, today in God's presence. But you want prayer for any reason. It is our honor to pray with you. We, we desire to pray with you. Um, I've said it hundreds and hundreds of times. Since I've been your pastor, we don't ever want you to drive off from this campus and just with a quick amen and get out of here kind of a deal where you said, man, I'm really hurting. I really need some help today. I wish they had given an opportunity for prayer or personal ministry. We've got prophets among us. We've got people that minister in the prophetic and in gifts. And we just believe that God will meet you at the point of your need right here, uh, whatever you need. So we'll pray with you. And uh, if nobody comes, then we go eat chicken quicker. That's all it is. Okay. Father, thank you that you've cleansed us through your word. You have sanctified us through your word. Jesus is the word of God made flesh. Thank you that what you have cleansed we will never again call unclean. Father, we'll not allow religion to do that to us ever again. Thank you that you've made us perfect on the inside. And you're an inside God working your way to the outside. We bless you for that perfect sacrifice that perfected forever the spirits of righteous men. Declared righteous, not by their behavior, but declared righteous by you, our Father. And God, if you call something righteous, it's because it is righteous. 
And I thank you for your righteousness is in Christ Jesus, gifted to us, your children. We receive it by faith. Let us walk in victory every day, knowing who we are. Never again let a person go out of here and return to the dumpster to eat out of that that would make them sick. But let them come to the banquet table of the Lord. Let them come to the feast that's even spread in the presence of their enemies. Even their enemies can't stop them from coming to Papa's table and eating and dining and fellowshipping with you. I thank you for that table today, that banquet that is spread, which is your son Jesus in your kingdom. Lord, I bless you today. We love you. We thank you that we are loved by you. I bless you in Christ's name. Amen. If you want prayer, please come. Church, we dismiss you. We love you. God bless you.